Bibliotherapy with State Library Victoria is a unique podcast series that offers you respite and comfort via the healing power of great stories. This series is brought to you by bibliotherapist Dr Susan McLean and State Library Victoria. Hello, welcome. I'm so glad you could join me for another episode of Bibliotherapy with State Library Victoria. Coming up, I'll share a story, puppet show, and the poem, If. Both of them provide a way for us to think a little more deeply about the set of rules we use for adult living, our ethics, our values, and the foundations we base our life on. The story is Puppet Show, written by Kate Kennedy in the Best Australian Stories 2015, published by Black Ink. So, relax, settle back and let yourself listen. Honeymoon, says the guy inspecting their visas with a secret little smile. Honeymoon, exclaims the limo driver, holding up a sign from the hotel with their names on it. Andrew's the same as ever, but hers with the new surname. Confronting her with a small, thrilling jolt of realisation, Mr and Mrs Andrew Dwyer. Her. Now. Her. Honeymoon, croons a woman at the hotel reception, happy for them, arms clasped together, as if it isn't nearly midnight, as if she's been waiting here just to greet them. She gives a small, courteous bow, so that Karen finds herself looking at the sharp, perfect part in the woman's jet black hair, and imagining her this morning in a room far less palatial than this resort reception lounge, raising a graceful hand and running a wooden comb through, affixing the carved clip, the perfect outfit smoothed ready for a day of upright, straight-backed politeness, smiling at the happiness and good fortune of others. A welcome drink, says the woman, gesturing to the bamboo lounge suite nearby. They sink gratefully into its cushions as their passports are processed and their bags taken away by two young guys in sarongs. We don't tip them, says Andrew. I'm pretty sure we don't tip them. Or if we do... It's at the end of our stay, not now. He has a tone in his voice she heard at the wedding. A stiff, edgy desire to do the right thing. A hint of strained anxiety. A man way out of his comfort zone. Don't worry about it now, she says, smiling. It's 11.30. We just need a good night's sleep and we'll get ourselves orientated tomorrow. She browses through the bank of brochures on the wall, massages, 
day tours, handicraft factories, spa treatments. She accepts her drink, marvelling at the carved, twisted decoration of watermelon and pineapple. Something laboured over by other graceful hands, behind closed doors somewhere, still up fashioning fruit cocktails at 11.30pm for late arrivals. People like us, she thinks, off the plane from Australia. In they trudge, out of taxis, with wheeled luggage and red sweating faces in the sudden humidity. White people with rubber thongs and sports shoes on and long cargo shorts and brand name singlets. People with tattoos on their legs and arms. People not wealthy in their own countries, but suddenly high status, demanding, querulous, suspicious, faces as puffy and pale as dough. Not her and Andrew though, they are golden. They are on a honeymoon, beaming like royalty. Thank you, they say warmly as they accept their drinks and wait for their room keys. Thank you very much. I'm going to buy myself one of those dresses, Karen thinks as the beautiful drinks waitress moves away with the empty tray. Dieting for the wedding has made her as slim as she's been since college. With an emotion between relief and disdain, she studies the other passengers arriving from their night flights. Overweight, frumpy women with their bra straps visible under their cheap, gauzy tops, slumping by the check-in desk. Posture, thinks Karen, a bit hazy with jet lag. It's all about posture. I can see that now. As yet another staff member escorts them down a manicured path to their villa, unlocking a gate which leads into their own private patio. She lets thoughts of these graceless others fall from her mind. She sees the plunge pool and daybed, the interior visible through glass sliding doors. A huge canopied carved bed, an artfully draped bed net. I'm married, thinks Karen. This is it, living the dream exclaims Andrew with relish, tossing his gnawed bit of pineapple garnish into the garden. Everything delights her. The multicoloured wheels of fruit sliced on the breakfast buffet. The bathroom with its frangipani flowers arranged on the towels and its resident translucent gecko the sunny hellos of the girls carrying armfuls of snowy towels up to the day spa. Andrew is relaxed and expansive, his sunglasses pushed up on his head. They have a couple's massage on their first morning, lying in a room with a view of impossibly green rice paddies, being scrubbed with ginger and turmeric paste. Andrew rising on an elbow, to snap, selfie, 
after selfie. Photos for their Facebook wedding page. Bliss, thinks Karen. Absolute bliss. Sneaking covert glances at Andrew, supine there on the adjacent massage table. He seems much too big for the compact, deferential masseuse moving around him. Like a gladiator sunning himself, muscles formed by working out and playing football three mornings a week at the gym. He is a giant here. Hair still barbered from the wedding, tattoos on his biceps. Karen turns her head from him and watches peaceful ducks paddling through the rice paddies and a human figure stooped in the distance, planting rice maybe. Such a beautiful photo opportunity. But there is no way she's going to rouse herself from the table to break the hypnotic spell of the moment. There'll be plenty of time for other photos, she thinks. We should go out to one of those cultural shows tonight, she says lazily into the crook of her arms, after dinner. Which one do you want to see? There's a few on. The traditional one, replies Karen, the puppet show. Not the monkey dance? That's meant to be great. Let's go to the shadow puppets. Whatever you say, says Andrew, closing his eyes again. She means to inquire at the reception desk. But later, as they wander up a street festooned with sarongs, a man draws breath to speak to them his face bright and polite. Andrew holds up his hand. No, said Andrew shortly. Whatever it is, no thanks. Not a tour, says the man. Tickets to cultural event. Why uncool it? Karen squeezes Andrew's arm. That's what I want to see, she says excitedly. That's the one, the shadow puppet. She hesitates at the word show. It doesn't seem quite right. The performance. Why don't we just book it through the hotel? Karen sees the man's head incline courteously. So polite, these people. Listening always with such graciousness. Yes, cultural performance of traditional puppets. In village, he holds out a page illustrated with two spiky, elongated figures poised in theatrical combat. In the village, says Karen to Andrew, that will be the one, not the tourist trap one. Yes, says the man, looking at her. Traditional. Come on, says Karen. It looks a lot in rupee But seriously, that's only a couple of dollars. We can get a taxi. There's hundreds going up and down the road. Take a taxi and show them this yes, repeats the man. He's wearing quite a natty little hat, Karen notices. Made of a folded, tucked piece of batik. Standing on a busy street corner, 
trying to interest passers-by in a traditional performance in his village. Okay, she hears herself saying eagerly, we'll have two tickets for tonight. I was going to say yes, mutters Andrew. You don't have to jump in like that. The man nodding, beaming, noting something on a card he hands them, folding their money carefully. Deference, Karen thinks. That's the word she's looking for. The taxi bumps across potholes on the outskirts of the town, pulling up outside a darkened building. Isn't this great, enthuses Karen. See all those guys there in their traditional clothes? And this building must be the village Kompong. Andrew casts a troubled look at the darkness outside them and leans into the front to address the driver. It's safe, right? This is where the, what is it, the puppet show is on? Yes, right inside there. Why young call it? Special building for traditional show. Karen feels a pulse of excitement. This is so much better than going with the other guests. Queuing for the standard show on the hotel's minibus. This is the real deal. And you will wait here to take us back to the hotel again when it finishes? The driver nods calmly. Of course, I wait if you want. That's how poor they are, whispers Andrew, as they approach the dark building where light seeps through double carved doors. They're happy to wait for two hours just to get that return fare. They must spend their whole lives waiting around. Karen feels safe next to him, shouldering through the shadows. She sees light hit the high cheekbones of a man waiting there, opening the door for them, ushering them inside, taking their tickets without a word. Stepping through into flickering lamplight, Karen can make out the shapes of expectant people waiting quietly on folding chairs at the back of the kompong and sitting on mats on the floor. A troop of gamelan players kneel patiently at their instruments beside a simple raised platform on which a bamboo frame sits, a large white sheet stretched within it. Karen reaches for her iPhone as they find two chairs tucked down the back, hoping she'll be able to capture some of this atmospheric flickering lantern light in a photo. No flash, obviously, just a discreet photo or bit of footage. But how would a mere photo capture it? The respectful hush, the croaking of frogs outside the sudden blaring jangle of gamelon. The music seems so exotic and discordant, the gongs lulling her into a kind of trance. And the smells, smoky scents of teak wood and coconut oil, mosquito coils and the kerosene of the lamps around the stage. An older man solemnly disappears behind the screen, 
and takes his leisurely time settling there and arranging lanterns as the music increases in tempo and volume. Suddenly there are two long-limbed shapes in black silhouette against the screen. The sticks used to manoeuvre their supple limbs and spines just visible. They gesture mysteriously at each other. Karen is lost in it. The gamelan players sit straight backed and elegant. And every now and then, when one intricately detailed character appears against the screen, its elaborate headdress like a pharaoh's, the audience makes some small collective sound, a murmur or hiss of recognition, or a shared ripple of appreciative laughter. She'll make a photo book of this, she thinks dreamily, taking picture after picture, or just one of those images printed onto canvas like a painting that you could do online. With one final blaring thrum of gamelan, the performance ends, and the elderly puppeteer rises slowly to his feet. Karen can see the silhouettes of other audience members start to stretch and rise, and she whispers to Andrew, That was fabulous, but I'm dying for a pee. Will you go and make sure our taxi driver is back where we agreed, and I'll meet you there in a sec. He gives her a wry grin. You think you're going to find a toilet here? I bet it's an outhouse down some track and it'll be pitch black. Can't you hold on until you get back to the resort? No, I really have to go. Look, it's through there. She points to a side door, gives him a quick kiss on the cheek and slips out. Her mind is still full of flickering light acrid scents and jangling gongs, the puppets' elongated jointed arms gesturing through some elaborate traditional story. The mechanics of which, to be honest, were lost on her. She follows a winding path of concrete slab lit by lamps, following a trail of small arrows hammered into the ground. Down here, she is sure she will encounter a rudimentary latrine of some sort, whatever the village has managed to build for its visitors. She rounds a corner and feels a quick slip of astonishment at the sight of a tiled, fluorescently lit block of women's toilet stalls. Set there in the darkness, it's as incongruence as a landed UFO, flushing toilets too, with hand basins. Afterwards, she hurries back, still blinking in amazement, to search for Andrew in the compound's courtyard. Other paths curve before her, and behind the buildings, she is aware of floodlights and noise, the revving of big engines. Through the flung open doors of the building, a group of men are clearing away the rows of folding chairs, lit now by a single electrical globe suspended in the centre of the room. Karen rounds a corner and stops, 
taken aback. A long row of enormous air-conditioned buses stand idling, their interior lights revealing rows of plush, upholstered seats. The place is thronged. Tourists move in small groups from bus to bus, looking for the one they have come in. Clutching tickets and climbing aboard, Karen sees families with dawdling tired children, the thin fair hair of the girls twisted into rows of braids. Older tourists too, with large cameras slung around their necks. Many of the buses are long distance luxury coaches, she notices now, come all the way from the beach resorts. A trip into the mountains to see a cultural show. Maybe two in one evening. Probably all off now to the monkey dance. And manoeuvring their way around the giant idling coaches, trying to edge their way out of the parking bays, are the two accompany minibuses. Karen, searching the crowd for Andrew, recognises one from their own resort and she's certain the young man driving it is the one who greets them at the front desk each morning. Yes, he's waving now, beckoning. Karen smiles weakly back. What an idiot she was, kidding herself about this, and continues to thread her way through the crowd, dazzled by high-beam lights, dodging vehicles, It's impossible to imagine these monstrous shining vehicles bumping up that pothole dirt track and through the same narrow gates they arrived through. And yet, here they are somehow and the family compound she sees is actually a parking lot and each massive sleek coach is filled with white faces looking out dully through the tinted windows or scrolling through images on their own phones and cameras, talking but not smiling, busy with the next thing on their agenda. How strange these people look, Karen thinks with a jolt of disorientation, their eyes passing over her, so uniformly flat and incurious. And the reason her scanning eyes can't yet spot her husband, she realises is because everyone here is dressed very much the same. The men in their long shorts and singlets, the women in their rayon batik print dresses, bought that day on the same street she and Andrew had walked. Where is he? The coaches thrum and jerk, hydraulic doors shuddering as they wheeze open to admit more people, who stand still, Curious and suspicious, repeating their resort names again and again to the nodding drivers. Karen fights down panic. They're leaving. She's left behind. Ridiculous. And finally catches sight of Andrew, waiting for her next to the same small, grimy orange taxi that would come in. Where did you get to? He says, slipping his arm around her waist. I was just starting to worry about you, thinking maybe you'd lost your way back. 
She feels the hot weight of his arm, its thick ropes of flexing muscle. Are you kidding, she answers. How could I have got lost? The place is packed. We could have even got a direct shuttle back to the resort. There's one here. I just saw it. Well, I'm still glad we organised our own taxi, says Andrew stolidly, supporting the local economy. You like the show? Says the driver to Karen. She gives him her honeymoon smile. Oh, yes, I loved it. Thank you. It was great to see something traditional, adds Andrew loyally. Although Karen knows he's found the thing way too long and incomprehensible. With the music and everything. Yes, says the driver. Why uncool it? Traditional. As he speaks, she glances over at the departing motorbikes, roaring nimbly out of the lot, with two or three people on each one. The pillion passengers are in traditional dress, the girls still stunningly straight-backed, holding their beautifully coiffed black hair in place as the bikes accelerate. The gamelan players They're not solemn now, they're laughing, each one stunning as a fashion model, perched on the back of the motorbikes, holding on casually with one hand, tilting their faces into the fresh night air. They go back now, says the driver, following her eyes, back to their village. She watches them as they roar off into the darkness her heart unaccountably aching. Hard to believe we have to go back to reality tomorrow, isn't it? Andrew says on their final morning over breakfast. He yawns. Back to work for me on Tuesday. Karen sees the living room of their house suddenly, the wedding presents set on every surface, flagged with post-it notes, waiting for her thank you cards. We should go to the market today, she says, and buy gifts for people. Have you got the energy? Why wouldn't he have the energy? Eating three huge meals a day, being weighted on hand and foot, swimming lazily in the pool, his fit, perfectly nourished body, sprawled at ease, now in a cushioned chair. Why wouldn't she? Massaged to boneless bliss, a wallet full of spending money, relaxed, pampered, married. She pushes away this feeling and spears a piece of pineapple, still carved. Someone must do this every morning as their job. Handicrafts, she says brightly. That's what we need for gifts. It feels like a foray into battle, the market. A labyrinth. Slim hands reaching to touch her arm. Low, insistent voices asking her to name a price. Faces seeking eye contact. Women holding up lengths of beautiful fabric to her body, wrapping her in sarongs. 
murmuring, always polite. The sound like bees, deepening and rising in volume as soon as you pause, as soon as you betray an interest. No thanks, Andrew keeps saying, growing more brisk and resolute as the onslaught continues. No, we're just looking. Carved painted cats and wind chimes, incense in woven canisters, lurid acrylic paintings of Buddha, cellophane-packed hair clips of clustered plastic frangipani flowers, Silk dresses of every conceivable pattern and colour. And a whole floor of the market dedicated to offerings. Tiny cakes and eggs and flower arrangements. Heaped coloured balls of rice. Not for eating, for placing on shrines. Dozens of times, every day. Cakes and rice eaten only by street dogs or left to rot when the incense burns down, replaced with fresh ones. It is overwhelming, Karen thinks. It is unstoppable. She's dizzy now. The heat, the smells, the assault of it. Too much of everything. They buy ginger soap and coconut oil shampoo, incense and vanilla pods. Andrew buys a stack of bing-tong t-shirts for the guys at his work, haggling until Karen feels uncomfortable. Suddenly he's an expert in intimidation. That's a good price to you, is it? He says. Well, it's not what I call a good price. Not at all. Stern like an intolerant boss, like a headmaster. Her towering, bulky husband... Meaty hand pressing on a stack of cotton t-shirts, leaning down over the vendor, and the man's face closed, struggling to his feet, his wife faltering behind him. Andrew, she thinks, stop. It's so cheap. It's too cheap. And Andrew sliding the stack into a plastic bag when she protests over beating them down, saying... Baby, it's a buyer's market like you wouldn't believe. Moving off between the narrow aisles, an expressionless Goliath. Nauseous now as well as dizzy. The sickly scent of the tropical flowers. Hammocks and kites and dream catchers. They are in the handicraft section now. And Karen sees the stall selling one and cool it puppets. They are the real thing. Some made of card and some of something more durable, like hard, cured leather. The elongated painted eyes on their grimacing faces look away from her. The cut-out costumes spilling over their shoulders, intricate as lace doilies. Andrew catches her eye and grins indulgently. How much for these three? He says to the stallholder, pointing at some puppets strung up over their heads. What are you doing? Says Karen. I'm buying you some of these. You loved that performance, didn't you?
didn't you? That looked great on a wall somewhere at home, don't you think? Andrew, wealthy here, assured, a consumer comfort zone he's enjoying. She squeezes his hand. Thanks, I mean it. Which ones do you want? Well, I don't know the stories. They're all different and important characters, I think. These three, says Andrew again, pointing. They look like kind of a set. And the storeholder carefully unhooks the puppets with their delicate, articulated arms and torsos, shows her how fluidly and expressively they can move and they strike a deal. A present, says Andrew, grinning like Daddy Warbucks as he pays. For my wife. The stallholder musters an expression of delight. Your first time to Bali, he says, and when they ascend, he cries, Honeymoon! Then the return limo transfer from the resort to the airport. Back into the grimy, tropical heat of Denpasar. The driver hefting their overstuffed, zippered cases into the trunk with a grunt of effort. A man used to lifting the booty of tourists. A man who does it every day. Karen staring out the window at this traffic-clogged highway. Vehicles of all descriptions, ferrying more and more in and out. I'll give him my money, she thinks. The wad of rupiah she has left in her money belt, grimy with being counted out by fretful, hard-working fingers. Money folded and refolded, earned so hard. She'll give him the cash, not make a big deal out of it. Just tuck it discreetly into his hand when they get out. And Andrew is getting the bags. They pull up at international departures. Karen has the money in her hand ready, waiting for Andrew to get out and haul their cases from the boot so they can start the trudge into the terminal and into the queues full of other sunburnt, sweating white people, all with huge stuffed suitcases, waiting to check in. A terminal which will be cold with expensive, chilled air after the muggy, tarmac-smelling heat of outside. She waits, but Andrew stays sitting. She stares at him, curled notes of a poor currency in her fist by her side. Aren't you getting out, she says, and Andrew shakes his head. That's his job, he says. A patient, slightly annoyed edge to his voice. That's what he's paid to do. It's part of our transfer. Karen hesitates a second, seeing her husband's stubbornly folded arms the ease with which he's sprawled, waiting for the driver to open his door. Then she pushes open her own door and moves around to the back of the car, where the driver is hauling out the bags 
Sorry, she says too brightly. They're so heavy, let me give you a hand. But the man stiffens and she has the sudden stricken thought that Andrew is right. She's doing it all wrong. She's probably insulting him now. And sure enough, the driver's discomfort is visible as he lugs out her suitcase. Andrew is suddenly out of the car in a flash, looming at his other side, giving her a pissed-off glance and saying, Sorry about that, apologising for her. Karen hesitates, smelling hot tarmac and rubber, fecund rot, jet fuel, the sunscreen sliding off her with her own sweat. Just into that terminal and into the air conditioning and through check-in and customs, shunted along into where they belong, passport holders only beyond this point, the guiding lines painted on the floor, taking them back to where they come from, processed, honeymoon over. Karen grips the handle of her own case and jerks it up onto the curb, and the folded wad of money falls from her hand as she does so, fluttering to the ground like rags. The driver watches her crouch hurriedly to claw the notes up off the ground while Andrew is distracted by his own case. And as she rises clumsily to press them into his palm, she thinks, while well, now his humiliation is probably complete. Thank you, she blurts. Thank you, Terry McCashear. Good night. Then into the terminal, x-rayed, stamped, buckled into economy for the long flight home. In Australia, they pass through customs in fluoro-lit early morning and shuffle with sleepwalkers' obedience into the something-to-declare line because Karen is concerned about the vanilla and raffia passing quarantine. She unzips her case for the official. Here, she says, pointing. This is the organic material. The vanilla's fine, says the woman. What about seeds, animal products, anything made of hide? No, says Andrew firmly. And Karen hesitates, feeling him tense beside her. How familiar he looks to her here, back on home turf, still taking up so much space as he stands planted squarely before this official, refusing to be drawn. Her husband. They're married. This is it. She takes in his bing-tang t-shirt, his sunburnt forehead, the shuttered, bored sullenness of his expression. As predictable and closed, as the faces of the tourists on the bus, paying for their ration of cultural tradition. 
and done with it the moment it was finished. Wait, she says. And she's reaching under the stiff layers of waxed batik with its gorgeous geometrical designs beneath the compressed stack of cheap T-shirts, beneath the crackling cellophane-wrapped soaps and cats and hair clips, all their loot for the thin, delicate surface of the puppets. You got some of those shadow puppets, says the customs officer, unsurprised. Well, yeah, I'm afraid they'll have to be confiscated. They're untreated buffalo hide. Andrew shifts his weight, incredulous. What about shoes and that? He says. They're all untanned leather too. All the... He makes a wide gesture at the queues of other tourists shuffling through the nothing-to-declare lines. All the crap these guys have bought, the sandals and jewelries and whatnot, why aren't they declaring it? Up goes his arm, blocky and angry, then falls back to rest in a curl, combative fist on his hip. Karen hears the bullocky, aggrieved tone of implied injustice in her husband's voice as he rocks back on his big sunburnt feet. What do they use, she wonders, to destroy the things they seize? A big incinerator, maybe? Or a large tub of acid? God, that must be the jet lag talking, she thinks, catching herself. As if they'd use acid. Burning, that would be better. She doesn't want to look at Andrew or witness this display. She pushes her hand through the suitcase now, sure of where she's carefully stowed the three figures. Runs a finger full of regret over the painted hide surface of the first one, tooled with such care and exquisite detail. Imagines the lamplight shining through the intricate lace of these holes. The character rearing up to its full, dignified height, chin lifted, wrist tilted, narrowed eyes, lined with scarlet, full of power and grace. The puppet's sticks click together uselessly as she tugs them free, their arms and legs splaying, askew, awkward now they're in her hands. Take them, She says flatly, pushing them across the counter. Please, just take them away. I wonder what you noticed about the Honeymooners' foundations on which they base their lives. 
Karen and Andrew have very different ways of behaving. Karen seems able to look a little deeper, to find delight and appreciation. In contrast to Andrew's more limited awareness, which is shown by his lack of appreciation and criticism. Karen, more curious, has a sense of adventure that doesn't seem to be fulfilled by her current life. Her heart strangely aches as she watches the beautiful gamelan players laughingly roar off into the darkness on the back of motorbikes. Andrew, wealthy in this more impoverished country, feels confident. Karen likened him to a stern, intolerant boss, haggling until Karen felt uncomfortable with his intimidating manner and wished he would stop. Karen, at times, seems to find her husband lacking in graciousness, as we saw when she leaped from the car to help with their bags. Finally, we see the difference in their ethics when they approach quarantine and then react to their puppets being confiscated. Are you more like Karen, who tries to experience special moments? Or more like Andrew, who takes selfies of these moments? How do you behave when faced with challenges or feel out of your comfort zone? What do you think this shows about your values? Next, I'll read If by Rudyard Kipling. The poem If first appeared in Kipling's collection Rewards and Fairies in 1909 and hence its use of gendered language. So again, I invite you to relax, settle back, and let yourself listen. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things 
you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart to nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone. And so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Beautiful words, powerful words to inspire us to think a little more deeply about the set of rules we use for adult living. Words to help us consider our ethics, our values and the foundations we base our lives on. Are you able to articulate your convictions to say what you believe in and value most in life? There are lots of lists of values available online. Use them as a starting point to pick ones that resonate with you. Dive in deep and find two or three that truly fill you with a sense of who you are at your core. Identify times when it felt good to live your values and also how it felt when you didn't live them. Start testing how you feel when you're cultivating the values you care about the most. Practice walking your talk and aligning your words, thoughts and behaviours with what you believe in so that you are truly living your values. Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead, has a great activity around values. I look forward to talking to you next time when we reflect on the limitations we put on ourselves based on others' expectations. If you would like to get in touch, you can send an email to inquiries at slb.vic.gov.au. Thanks for joining me. And to finish this episode, I'll leave you with a reread of If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself 
when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet, don't look too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone. And so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Join Dr. Susan McLean next Monday for another episode of Bibliotherapy with State Library Victoria.